0: Hello everyone, and welcome back on this warm September evening to 5x15 for the first event in our new season. For many of us, this time of the year may see us returning to usual routines after the summer break, perhaps thinking about the ways that we can change our habits or to work small acts of self-improvement into our everyday patterns. That's why we're so pleased to have with us this evening Dr. Michael Mosley. We'll be talking about his new book, Just One Thing. Adapted from his extremely popular BBC podcast of the same name, Just One Thing unearths a range of impactful, intriguing and surprising transformations that we can make to our health daily. Having reversed his own type 2 diabetes in 2021 through intermittent fasting, he brings a wealth of research and experience to this conversation and we're so excited to hear more about the everyday changes that we can make tonight. Dr. Michael Mosey is, of course, the internationally best-selling author of the 5-2 diet books, including The Fast Diet, The Fast 500, and The Fast 800 Keto. He trained as a doctor before becoming a journalist and a TV presenter. Tonight, he will be in conversation with the brilliant cook, writer, and presenter, Thomasina Myers, winner of MasterChef and co founder of the restaurant Oaxaca, which has won numerous awards for its food and sustainability credentials. Thomasina's passions lie in food and its power to positively impact people, both through mental and physical health and the environment. And she was awarded an OBE in 2019 for her services to the food industry. As ever, there'll be a chance for you to ask your questions towards the end of tonight's discussion, so please do post them in the Zoom Q&A box at any time during the event and we'll get to as many as we can. Don't forget too that you can buy copies of Just One Thing and both of our speakers' books from our independent bookselling partner, Newham Books, tonight. Information about how to order them will be posted in the chat shortly. Without any further ado, Michael, Tommy, welcome. Over to you.
1: Hello, hi there. I hope you no, can hear sorry, him. I was a bit slow there. Hi, Michael. Hello, very good to see you there. How are you? I'm very good. Uh, very busy at the moment, but very good. And I'm, it is really hot and sweaty outside, and I just wish that I was swimming in the Thames, except obviously with all the pollution, probably not a great idea. But I used yeah. to swim at, um, pretty well, you know, every day in the Thames, and then uh, it kind of put me off.
2: Oh, the pollution. I know it's, it's a bit dire. I think. Um... I think your thing on cold water, which I am a massive fan of as well, it does feel really disempowering with just when the entire nation is beginning to see benefits of all sorts of things to do wellness. I feel, feel there's a real surge, surge of interest in how things can mentally and physically affect us beneficially. Um, then we just can't even swim in our rivers and seas. Like, what's going on? <laughs> Great, <yeah. laughs> Not very good. So you must be really busy with your book tour right
1: um, now. Yes absolutely i'm also uh, making a new series for channel 4 uh which is keeping me busy and i'm writing another book now on sleep so okay. uh, never busy. rest
2: so what i so this actually is a really neat way in because i love your book um i love it for many reasons um i love it because i am someone who is constantly listening to podcasts about how to feel better uh, just I, I you know i have lots of energy Um, and there are times when I have less energy when I'm not treating myself as well and generally I feel wellness has got a bit of a bad name but essentially we all want to just feel fit and leap out of bed feeling like come on life I'm ready for you let me get into it and feel happy about that and I feel your book does that so neatly because um, it's got really nice guided advice at the beginning which is, you know, be kind to yourself, try things out over a long period of time, you know, at least a month to try and get that habit set in. Really useful things, because I think one of the first things people do when they try something new is they give up really easily. Do you find that? Have you had oh, that? Absolutely.
1: Yeah. It's got to be um, either the problem is generally because it's too optimistic that you're going to run a marathon, you know, in three weeks time, or you're going to lose 200 kilos, or you're going to, you know, give up chocolate forever or something like that. So you need kind of baby steps. And then they need to be really specific. So it's not enough to say, I'm going to eat better. You kind of go, how am I going to eat better? And if I'm going to do exercise, what am I going to do? How am I going to do it? When am I going to do it? And ideally, it should be sort of a bite-sized, something you can readily do, something which is specific. And ideally, something which is attached to something you are already doing, because the best way to acquire a new habit is to link it to something you already do. So it becomes attached to that habit, and then you're more likely to persist with it. So also, the purpose of the book is really to say, these are 30 just one things. I do not expect you to try them all. I do not expect you to enjoy them all. But uh, have a read, see what grabs you, give it a go, try and stick to it for at least a couple of months. And uh, if it sticks, that's great. If it doesn't, move on. Um, of the 30 things in the book, I do 28 of them on a pretty much daily basis. So just two I don't do, and I can talk about what those are. Well, come on, tell us right now. Like, you can't just send that as a teaser. Okay, uh, so two things I don't do. One thing I wrote about and um, had to go at was warm bars in the evening. Now, the reason for having warm baths is because it relaxes you. It's part of a wind down routine. There is also evidence that if you go and have a warm bath about an hour before you go to bed, and when you get out, what happens, that is a cooling process. Normally, the outside air is considerably cooler than the bath, so you get out of it, you cool down, your blood, which has you know, rushed to the surface, is going inwards. Your core body temperature begins to drop. And it's the drop in core body temperature, which actually triggers sleep. Ah, So warm bath had about an hour before bed is a really good way of triggering sleep. If you have um, onset insomnia, if you have difficulty falling asleep. Now, I spoke to a expert about this. I gave it a go, but I don't actually have a problem falling asleep. Plus, I like to have my cold shower in the morning. So I don't really want to have a hot bath in the evening and then a cold shower in the morning. So I ditched that one, but there, is, there are plenty of health benefits to hot bars, saunas, and things like that which I go into. And the other thing which I don't do is play video games. So that was one which really, really surprised me when I looked into it because I spoke to this researcher in Switzerland, and I've always seen you know, video games are the spawn of the devil, that they're horribly addictive, they're a complete waste of time, and I do not understand why all my kids play them. Uh, despite the fact they are now in their twenties and early thirties, their idea of a good time is still to kind of you know meet up with their mates and play video games. But she assured me she'd done a lot of research, which had started with children with autism and had moved on. That playing video games is a really good way of sort of sharpening your brain. There are considerable cognitive benefits to doing so. Uh, she recommended shoot 'em up games because you know you're trying to shoot the alien or something like that, but it's really demanding cognitively and she said if she can't do that then do one of the driving games where you crash into things or try to avoid it uh but I gave it a go but none of my kids would play with me because I was so terrible and so I mean I've I yet-
2: feel like if my children were listening to this they were by like whooping and cheering in the background because I'm afraid <laughs> I feel rather old-fashioned but I think I'm a bit like you that I kind of look at them and think you could be reading a book or like expanding your brain in other ways but uh, but it's fascinating. And that's what I think is so brilliant about your book, actually, is that all these things, it's not just because I feel like some of the things are like, yeah, I've heard that on the podcast and so I know that's why I'm doing Cold Water. But you provide the absolute nitty-gritty of exactly what the core benefit is. And I think that's what's so fascinating about the whole book is that you think, oh, so that's why. And that means that when I tell my children they're actually allowed to play some computer games. <laughs> And the reason why it might actually take the wind out of their cells. It might not be quite so attractive. If I no, fine.
1: If you, you say, that's fine, let me join yeah. you, that'll be even better. You're playing with your friends, let me join in. That'll, that'll discourage them.
2: Yeah, except, except I'm really bad. So we, I had this, this discussion when I was in a cold shower this morning with my husband, thinking about your book. I feel like well, you're in the, is the cold shower me. with your husband. Uh, well, he was chatting to me. He wasn't okay. in the cold shower, too. <laughs> he was just in the bathroom. We were okay. just having a chat while I was yeah. in the shower and um we were talking about gosh what were we talking about one of your just fun things that's now flown out of my head
1: standing um, on one leg uh food
2: standing on one leg oh, come on i've got them all here which one will it be it's got them all right here i've got them right fermented here Fermented foods fermented food it wasn't that uh dancing, dancing, dancing. Okay. we were dancing so we were oh, talking dancing about, yes because we were talking about playing and I said to him, the trouble is, I don't think I'm actually that good at playing. You know, when my kids want me to play a computer game with them, I get yeah. bored quite easily. I'm a bit distractible. But dancing on the other hand, I said to him, I do think dancing is one of the things I am good at. Because for me, that is playing. It's like playing around music. and So I, I'm delighted that dancing is here because
1: it always makes me feel fantastic. Absolutely. And the um, expert behind that one was super enthusiastic. I mean, really off the scale, super enthusiastic. When I, I interviewed her, she was actually herself a former dancer who had become a neuroscientist. She was now a professor of neuroscience at a Swiss Institute and uh, she just raved about it she said look uh, we've been dancing for thousands of years there's something almost innate in human beings that makes them want to dance and if you do it particularly with other people in a group it's an intensely sociable thing it combines music it combines movement Um, i actually took part in a study a while ago where we looked at salsa dancers and they you know." half-hour salsa session burns off an awful lot of calories, but it's also very intellectually demanding in the sense that you've got to remember your your steps, particularly if you're not very good at it. And Mm -hmm. so we actually measured uh, their cognitive ability, things like memory and things like that before they began and afterwards, and the dancing improved it. They actually kind of became, you know, they they, they became effectively smarter um, after a a half-hour dance than they had been before. They were more focused. There were lots of um, benefits. And plus, of course, it's fun. And one of the things I want to do with this book is say, there are things you can do which are fun. Exercise on the whole is not fun. Most, most people, yeah. the reason we don't like doing going for runs is because it's not fun. Uh, I actually did a, I was involved in another study uh, where we were looking at why some people enjoy running and other people don't. And uh, this was up at the University of Nottingham. And it turns out that some people produce Uh, this substance called endocannabinoids. Basically, they're cannabis-like substances which are naturally produced in your body. And some people get it when they're running and some people don't. So they sent four of us out running and three of them, their endocannabinoid levels shot up. And one of them, me, um, stayed completely flat.
0: That's so
1: unfair. Yeah, it was really interesting because one of them suffers from quite profound depression and she self-medicates. Uh, by running so when she runs her endocannabinoid levels shoot up she feels good they gradually tail off and then she has another run she she doses herself which is kind of fascinating and and, um, we also did this as part of an experiment looking at the benefits of singing and what we did there was getting the university of nottingham and what we did there is we got a group to either cycle vigorously sing together or read a manual on how to repair a washing machine. That was a kind of control group, if you like. And what we found is the people who got the biggest burst of endocannabinoids were the singers. They just kind of loved singing. You didn't have to be good, but you got this big burst of sort of joy. And it also shows why singing in studies has been shown to reduce pain and all sorts of other things and reduce the sense of depression and isolation. And it seems to be because of this particular particular neurochemical but it's also because you're part of a wider group and you're just sort of having fun together and so I, I find that fascinating love it
2: i i i i think that one of the reasons i'm i loved your book so much actually is those links between um these things that you do that give you physically but also have these huge um uh, mental uh, positive effects too because so, so much of that is linked it feels to me and and just what you said made me think of lockdown when their choirs couldn't meet up and sing together and people talked about how depressed they felt because they didn't get that hit of meeting up with their friends. And, and and I definitely, yeah. There's
1: there's also a lot of, that's why they tried to compensate virtually, which is kind of better than nothing, but it's much better if you can sing with others, just singing by yourself. I don't know if you do that, you know, put on the radio, do a bit of, you know, singing around enthusiastically. I sing when I'm in the shower. I sing when I'm having a cold shower. Because I find that sort of numbs the cold, but uh, my wife Claire is not, not a fan. She not leaves the singing. She likes well, to stand there stoically and just let the cold water pour down her. Uh, whereas I like to sing vigorously. I jiggle. Okay, giggle. That's a good one. No, it? no,
2: jiggle. I feel oh, like
1: oh, you jiggle. I, yeah, I kind absolutely. of
2: dance. I basically dance because it makes absolutely. It go so you're
1: me. you're doing the same thing. You're producing that surge of endocannabinoids, which is helping you fight off the pain of the cold water. Yeah, Uh, although
2: I feel my shower isn't
1: cold enough. I always think it needs to be a bit colder. It will get colder in winter. Yeah. At this time of year, if you're going to start, if anyone in the audience wants to give it a go, uh, what I suggest you do is you get in the shower, have a warm shower to start with, wash yourself all over, and then give yourself, turn it on the full blast of cold. Start with about 10 seconds and gradually build it up. Really, you don't need more than about 30 seconds. And it's really invigorating. Start now. Because the water will get an awful lot colder and the air will get an awful lot colder in a few months' time.
2: But I think that's a game changer for me. When I read that um, actually it was a a podcast by um, Dr. Rangan Chachi um, interviewing this brilliant um, cold water person. And I thought that was fascinating that you only need 30 seconds because so many of my friends or a few of my friends do cold showers. And for years I thought that's hardcore. I can't possibly do that. But actually, if you have a warm shower and then just switch at the end for that last 30 seconds, that's doable. I really think that for most people that can be doable.
1: Absolutely. And if you sing along, then that's two just one things all done together. Uh, one yeah. of the rules of thumb is as well is that you should stay in there long enough so you're no longer hyperventilating. That's what the expert said to me. He said that should last in about 20 So when you go in, cold water hits you, you start to go... So the idea is you kind of slow everything down and when you stop hyperventilating, you get out of the water. Um, cold swimming is also something uh you know, people do and there's quite a lot of evidence now on the benefits of that for mental health. Um so there was a study, the first proper randomized controlled trial on this was published about six months ago, showing that yes. people who do cold water swimming, they got them and randomly allocated them either to walk along a beach or swimming in the sea. Um well, I so, feel
2: like I feel like lots of these things are also good for mental health, because yep. I I mean I in my 20s, massively struggled with mental health. And I definitely do things to make myself feel better mentally. Light exercise, like I cycle around London, mainly because I know that on the weeks I cycle, I feel so much better than the weeks I don't. So that's just, that's not, I just built that into my life now, exercise.
1: Do you do resistance exercises, like press-ups and squats?
2: Well, so this, I was really interested in that because now that I'm getting on a bit, no longer such a young um, young chicken, um, uh, my cycling can sort uh, hurt my knee a bit. So yeah. I've got a slightly dodgy knee. So I've started okay. now realising at my age that I need to start doing resistance um, so that I can keep doing the exercise that I kind of need, I think,
1: to yeah. self-medicate there are, myself. There are also cognitive benefits to doing resistance, particularly the press-up and the squat.
0: So really? I do them
1: first thing in the morning with my wife, Claire. And yeah. the reason I do together. them... Yeah, we do them together, so we can right. urge each other on. And uh, I, the reason I do it then is because I we link it to get out of bed. So we get out of bed, we do it. So yeah. if we leave it to later in the day, we don't do it. So that's the trick: is basically link it to something you're already doing. So out of bed, press ups and squats, and sometimes a bit more. Now the press up and squat are really good because the squat works the biggest muscles in your body, which are those in your butt. Yeah. And the press-up is really good for your upper body strength, but also for your spine. And I recently had my spine tested by DEXA scan, and I have the spine of a 30-year-old, because I do press-ups. Way! Very good if you're a woman you're at your risk of osteoporosis,
0: because
1: yes. uh, that is how you strengthen your bones, is by doing things like press-ups, but also anything which uh, puts pressure on the bones. But in addition to that, the press-up and the squat, Are really good for the brain and indeed for things like depression and anxiety because what happens when you go up and down in a vertical motion like that is that leads to a big release of blood into the brain and that triggers the release in the brain of a substance called BDNF, brain-derived neurotrophic factor. And this is like fertiliser for the brain cells. So it is also one of the things that is released when people take antidepressants. So it is a natural form of antidepressant. And it is also a way of keeping your brain in good shape, along with your butt muscles. This is this is brilliant. So what I want to ask you
2: is, so I was doing a bit a squat-like exercise for my knee that yeah. someone t- told me, and then I think downward dog, like the yeah. sun salutation, is quite because you definitely do a bit of press up when you go down into yeah. your sun salutation, and then the downward dog must be quite good for spine.
1: Absolutely. I mean, one of the things you need to check out is online that you're doing the exercise right. Because, yes. again, uh, the danger is that, you know, you do a press-up or a uh, squat wrong and it yeah. makes the knee worse. I mean, in theory, pre- uh, squats should be quite good for the knees because they build the muscle on the thighs. And that's what protects the knees in the end. Yeah. But there are all lots of online sort of knee exercises. So, uh, yeah, uh, those are can- kind of my go-to. Uh, exercises. But if you can do them firstly in the morning, encourage your partner to do them as well, then there's a much greater chance you will stick with it. Because there are mornings when you don't feel like doing it, mornings when the other person doesn't want to feel like doing it, but you can nudge each other on. As I said, try to tie it to something you're already doing.
2: So I really also want to ask on on that because I'm fascinated by that going movement up and down. My party trick is doing headstands in kind (laughs) of on top of bars, on tables, (laughs) whatever. But I feel like that's going to be a
1: rush of blood to the brain. Indeed. I, I don't think anyone's ever done a study on it. Uh, so uh, that remains to be seen. Um, the study I'm quoting on BDNF was done by a group down at the University of Swansea. But that's the, the truth is there are a lot of quite strange things people do that have never been tested. So uh, maybe someone out there has done a study on people standing on their heads at parties. But if so, I haven't come across it. But I will go and check it out okay but also so also leading on to
2: the things that connect physically and mentally well I guess most of them do actually in your book but I think this mid-morning breath work is quite is quite personal isn't it because I think in modern life one of the problems is we're all too busy we spend too much time looking at our phones we get distracted and that time to just sit still and take a moment how do you fit that into your routine
1: well, I have two different ways of doing it. One is I just do a very slow breathing exercise, which we could do now, which I found really game-changing. And uh, you call it four two four. It's also known as box breathing. So give oh, it a yes. go now. You know, yeah. you, you breathe into your nose, yeah. hold it for two, and then out again. For a count of four. When you do that for a couple of minutes, what happens is it switches off the sort of adrenaline pathway, the sympathetic nervous system, the go, 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 go mode, and it switches on something called the parasympathetic system, which is kind of a breather, a breaker. And so if you do that, what happens is your heart rate slows down, you become much calmer. It's used by, in the NHS, I know quite a few people who work, in casualty who do it. I use it in the middle of the night when I'm awake and I'm distracted by my thoughts. I just do this, and then I almost inevitably drop off. The, uh, the physiology, I go into it in the book, and the physiology is fascinating. But at one level, it is unbelievably simple. But the reason I put the science in is I want to persuade you that it's something you really want to try. It is an unbelievably easy thing to do. I also write about mindfulness, but mindfulness, in many ways, is harder. Yes. So actually, even to spend 10 minutes alone with your thoughts is unbelievably difficult if you've never done it. Yeah, you know, just doing this, just breathing is a brilliant way. And if you ever suffer from panic attacks, it is the way that you can get yourself out of a panic attack. But you have to have practiced it beforehand so that you know what you're doing, you know how effective it is. And when you start to have a panic attack, which is normally caused by hyperventilation, you start to go, and you're blowing yeah. off carbon dioxide. It's mainly a sort of physiological thing. Uh, if you slow down the breath and you really center yourself, then that just calms you down. And it is, I mean, you know, people who study yoga, promote yoga, they've known about this for thousands of years. I love the fact that loads of stuff, which uh, the great religions, the great yogics, whatever, have known, and we've gone, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then suddenly the scientists look into it and they go, oh, that's interesting. And so everyone goes, oh, right, now I've got to do that. It's like, you know, mindfulness, which is really meditation re-sort of framed by a group in California. It's very effective, but... uh, it is a reframing of, an, of a Buddhist practice which has been around for an awful long time.
2: Yeah, and I think that's why we, um, you know, modern modern day living, you know, ig- ignores the, the science and, well, the wisdom of the ancients at their kind of own peril, don't they? Absolutely,
1: because... and that's why I love. I mean, I love exploring that area, which is how I got originally into intermittent fasting and things like that. As you can see, I'm also following one of my other precepts, which is glugging lots of water. Yes, exactly. I...
2: I, I... Just for the people who are listening, actually, I want to reiterate that I, um, I was a guinea pig on a mindfulness course that people, someone did online, which was brilliant, the Light Project. And so I did a breathwork thing online with 60 other people in the room. And it was so transformative for me uh, that I've been doing it ever since. That was about a year and a half ago. And I completely concur with you that it's way simpler to just stop and do a little bit of breathing than it is to find a space, cut yourself off in the world and let your th- thoughts alone. So anyone who's interested in this kind of thing, I completely think you're right. I think that's, that's the easiest way in, isn't it? It um, is. And
1: I, I found it really quite life-changing. Something as simple as that, it just, you know, when I'm having moments of anxiety, it just calms me down. So yeah. uh, one of the things we should obviously talk about is food. Which... Yes, I
2: know, <laughs> exactly. That is and I, was, I so love the beachy bit because the thing I've been cooking on repeat all summer, is this hummus of either chickpeas or carlin peas, and then roast beetroot, garlic, a bit but chili, but a bit of cumin. And it's a really good way for, to get my kids eating beetroot because although they would hate the color of beetroot, I always thought it would be so attractive, that bright violet color. But no, don't want it, it's quite earthy, I get that flavor thing. But if you can add, I think, enough vinegar or roast it to concentrate those juices, and make it sweeter, then it really is a delicious vegetable. And here is one of your 30 things of just eating
1: more beetroot. Absolutely. I mean, what would be lovely is to do a sort of Instagram live, as you were saying, or something where we talk about food in more depth. Because I know the theory, whereas you're brilliant at the recipes. It's the same thing with my wife, Claire. She's a GP. But uh, what she does is she's also got she's on Instagram under Dr. Claire Bailey. She follows you. but I'm going to check her out. Yeah, Dr. Claire Bailey, C-L-A-R-E, Bailey, B-A-I-L-E-Y. And she posts a lot of recipes on there. She's particularly interested in the impact of food for children, encouraging parents to cook with their children. And uh, she loves innovation. For example, she loves uh, cooking with insects, which we were talking about earlier. She she just loves Mexican food. She loves trying new things. And it's like that. So I can tell you that eating beetroots is good for you, drinking beetroot shots. It, I can tell you the science. But what you have to do or, you know, Claire has to do is translate that into something that people actually want to eat or drink. You know, I tried it. I'm doing this Channel 4 series and I'm helping people with health issues and I've tried persuading them to drink beetroot juice because it can bring down your blood pressure. But they hate they hate it. So I'm trying to, I'm suggesting mix it with a bit of, you know, I didn't think they would eat beetroots, but I thought they might drink the juice. But now I'm saying perhaps with a bit of ginger, with a bit of apple juice. Well, I think you could actually look at one of my books because there is a drink that the
2: Mexicans are very, well, I mean, one of the most biodiverse countries in the world. So they have this enormous uh, 50,000 plant species compared to the UK, which is about 1,500 plant species. So they have this rich kind of amount of wild herbs and greens and vegetables and one of the juices they make in the morning is called vampiro okay. vampire juice which has obviously beet juice in it um and yes they put ginger in and they put um so i can definitely send you that recipe because it definitely makes it taste uh, lovely and kind of moorish bit of orange juice in there i think and all sorts of things
1: absolutely uh, and uh, for those who are interested uh, the reason this is the this is the biochemistry, if you like, the yeah. fancy bit. Uh, essentially, beetroot rich in nitrates. Nitrates are converted by bacteria in your mouth into nitric oxide. That causes vasodilation, the expansion of your blood vessels. That's what brings your blood pressure down. And what it also does is, particularly with older people, it gives them a boost so they're able to become more active. So that's the kind of... The Romans used it as an aphrodisiac, and strangely enough, the mechanism is exactly the same as in Viagra. So what Viagra does, it leads to the release of nitric oxide and the expansion of blood vessels, but mainly around your genitalia. So so uh, there you go. Another good reason to consume beetroots. Uh, I, um, I know, I, I,
2: it's just so brilliant. I, that's what the scientists are saying. When I read that bit about, because I immediately obviously honed into the feed bits. I I got a, I went straight for the feed chapters, and um, I was fascinated by that. It's just, and I told my children, I was like, when you eat this, Your blood, you know, that idea that your blood vessels are dilating, it's just incredible, like really cool. Um, So if we're talking about food, we better also touch on oily fish.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, Oily fish, loads of research on the benefits of omega-3 for the brain, for the heart. And I try to eat it sort of three or four times a week. Uh, The NHS has gone a bit, ooh, you know, only twice a week, but I can find no good basis for that. If you're going to have oily fish, ideally, you want it sort of, you know, it is, it has to be sustainable, you know, yeah. ideally mackerel. And um, yeah. there are there are forms of sustainable oily fish you can find. Uh, yeah. At the other end, you have things like swordfish, which I wouldn't touch because no. it's riddled with mercury and things like that. So um, very, very occasionally, about once every five years, I have a bit of swordfish, but I feel guilty about it. Yeah, no, such elegant, I'm saying, actually, fish. I don't even
2: eat salmon anymore because I read about mercury, but also the farming of it. So I'm a bit iffy about salmon. But on a happier note, so I, I actually try and eat not very much fish because of there being, you know, yeah. not enough fish. So I eat a bit of fish from my market off day boats, but eating chocolate. I mean, <laughs> this I really do believe in because obviously cacao is from Mexico. And I find now this is an interesting thing. So you told me that you sometimes wake up at night.
1: Yeah.
2: So my last two books, I've ended up almost accidentally writing quite often by night because I've got too many children in the house, never have any piece to write. Um, And so I don't get enough done in a day. And then I wake up panicking at night about three o'clock or four o'clock in the morning, can't get back to sleep. And I think, well, I might as well do something while I'm awake, can't waste it. I I could be writing right now. So I make myself a a really delicious hot chocolate, very intense, plain chocolate, a bit of cocoa as well, a tiny bit of sugar, some milk. And I tell you, it makes me feel amazing. Again, hour and a half of pure blissful writing.
1: Wow! And do crash later.
2: Uh, well, then I go to sleep, which is what I want to do anyway. Okay.
1: Now, in a way, you see, you are following on the in the footsteps of Charles Dickens, because uh, back in the Victorian times and the pre-Victorian times, there was a tradition of what they called the first and second sleep. It's only relatively recently that we've got this modern phenomenon of sleeping through the night. So people would go to sleep at about nine when the sun set and it was getting dark. They would sleep through till about three in the morning. They would get up, they would meet the neighbors, they would do the cleaning. Or in the case of Charles Dickens, he would roam the streets of London looking for inspiration. Then he would return at about six in the morning and have a second sleep. So a lot of writers talk about the first and second sleep. And this Mm -hmm. seemed to be a kind of thing. But the chocolate sounds delicious and like you, I think as long as it's cocoa itself, is really rich in flavanols and other you know healthy things. The reason the chocolate has got such a bad reputation is broadly speaking because uh, it comes particularly milky chocolate has hardly any cocoa in it and it just has you know loads and loads of sugar. So yes. it is a you know an abomination of what the Mexicans were originally dealing with. So I, I love your recipe. And again if you ping that one over um, the only yes. thing I would say is if you're not writing a book and you do feel like you want to go back to sleep, then one of the best things to do if you have laying there at three in the morning and you're tossing and turning is you get out of bed, you go and find a quiet corner, you do something boring until you find, feel tired and then you go back to bed again. Because yes. uh, the worst thing that can happen is you lie there agonizing. Alternatively, uh, you go off, you do something which is... Uh, very demanding and interesting, which case you're not going to go back to sleep. Um, So you go, you find a quiet corner, you read a dull book, you listen to some music, maybe you do a bit of breathing, and when you start to feel tired, you go back to bed. Because what you're trying to do is train your brain to associate bed with sleep and sex and nothing else. And too often what we do is we associate it with being awake or being stressed or being on our phones or watching television. It's really a way of reprogramming your brain uh, in a sort of Pavlov dog sort of way, to associate, as I said, bed with something very simple, which is I get into bed, I go to sleep. If I'm okay, not, so... no, sorry, I'm interrupting. No, absolutely. And if you're not tired, uh, then don't go to bed. It's kind yes. of the rules. But the rule is try to get up at the same time every morning, whatever time you went to bed.
2: Okay, great. Um, that leads really neatly on to one of your um, one of your maxims, which I personally am fa- fascinated by which is think yourself stronger because yeah. it feels like, you know, that bit you've just said is programming your brain to associate your bed with sleep, but this think yourself stronger. Can you talk a bit about that? Cause I found it so interesting. Yeah,
1: no, this is something that sports people have been doing a lot uh, for a long time where they basically pre-plan what they're going to do. If you're a sprinter, you imagine in your head, you know, going off the blocks, racing down the track, you know, storming through the winning thing. If you're a footballer, you can go out and you can imagine kicking the ball through the post. You know, if you're Johnny Wilkinson and you're a rugby player, then you imagine converting it. And it seems to be that this thinking about it, thinking it through, imagining it, actually kind of trains your body to do it. So surprisingly enough, there was a study uh, where they got people to lift weights. And uh, another group who just thought about lifting weights, didn't actually lift the weights. And the group who thought about it did, were able to lift stronger weights at the end of the three months than they had at the beginning. And that seems to be because one of the things it does is you never really uh, push yourself as hard as you can because what your brain does is acts like a brake. It basically goes, you're stupid. You don't want to lift that weight because you're just going to damage your back and your arms. You've never lifted weights before. Why are you beginning now? Don't do it. So there's a part of your brain which is just going, don't do it. And so you feel, oh, I'm really exhausted. And uh, what uh, Thinking About It does is it basically encourages, it teaches your brain that actually it's okay. It's okay. Just this once, you can let this person do a little bit more. Uh, and so, yeah, it's a very interesting example of the sort of mind-body connection. And uh, that, I think, is kind of, in a way, sort of remarkable. I, I have to hasten to add that it, unfortunately, is not the same as going for a run. Thinking about going good. for a run while lagging on the sofa, eating a pizza is not the same as actually doing it. <laughs> That was, there are, there are that limits was, to the power of thinking about
2: things hundreds of people are listening and now going oh what what, what a shame what a shame um isn't that what um you know there's just massive praise last year and the year before about i'm trying struggling to find the word in my brain where if you think something enough it will happen so yes. if you think you'll be a millionaire enough time we'll,
1: yeah <laughs> it was based on some book by an Australian woman. And she became yeah. a millionaire, but mainly by selling an awful lot of books. Yeah. but exactly. <laughs> so
2: I, I feel I, a bit of that. It's about if you think enough about something, then you're programming yourself to do the thing in advance. Yeah. So if you think, I'm going to sell a lot of my books, I'm going to sell a lot of my books, you might start organising your book tour more methodically. Yeah, or, true.
1: There might yeah. be an element to it. I remember a friend of mine, when we were both teenagers, and we were both quite short, uh he was convinced that if he said to himself i will be six foot tall i will be six foot tall but the last time i saw him he was still five foot six and that was (laughs) so
2: there are limits there are limits
1: to what you can achieve yeah
2: okay so i want to find a bit more um let's let's find a few things standing on one leg what's that about
1: sure so uh we talked about resistance exercise you know to build your muscles and the squat and the press-ups uh but And there's also aerobic exercise, which is where you go for a run, a walk, a cycle, and that works your heart and your lungs. But balance is something we don't really think about that much because we take it for granted. But actually, balance is an extraordinary thing. You know, we are pretty well the only, you know, mammal that can stand on two legs. So that was an enormous achievement. It freed up our hands. Arguably, it was the kind of beginning of uh, uh, human race as we know it uh, was when the first Apes stood upright, but there is a practical reason why you want to work on your balance, and that is because um, falling over accidentally is the number is the second most common preventable cause of death worldwide um, after road traffic accidents. So, particularly as people get older, they're inclined to fall, they break a hip or something like that. Um, so, you kind of want to work on your balance, and one you can do it by doing tai chi or by doing yoga. But I like to do it by standing on one leg when I'm brushing my teeth. So it's another example of something I already do, which is I brush my teeth for two minutes in the morning and in the evening. And so why not incorporate standing on one leg so I can stand on one leg for 30 seconds and then I switch to the other one. You have to kind of use an electric toothbrush. Somebody complained that they were trying to do it. And that is really tough. Whereas if you've got (laughs) an electric toothbrush, you can kind of just do it like that. And yeah. uh, There are lots of benefits to it, not just in terms of balance. But there was a study done some years ago, which was published in the BMJ, where they got a group of middle-aged people and they ran a bunch of tests on them. And one of them was their ability to stand on one leg uh, for, you know, could they do it for a minute or not? Or how long could they do it for? And then 20 years later, they followed them up to see what had become of them. And that was the single best predictor of who would still be uh, alive. Wow. And still, uh, that was the greatest of life expectancy. That was it. And it's partly because when you are standing on one leg, you are combining so many different things. It's cognitively challenging. It's challenging for your brain, because your brain has to coordinate three things. It has to. Co- you're getting inputs from your eyes. You're getting information from your inner ear, your balance organs. And you're also getting information from the leg. The It's called the proprioceptors. These are signals from your breath from the leg telling your brain where you are and your brain has to coordinate all those things and it's really quite hard so making it do that or practicing it's kind of good for the brain it's good for your sense of balance it's good for your leg muscles and if you try doing it with your eyes shut you'll discover just how hard it really is yes most people under the age of say 60 can probably manage 20 to 30 seconds with their eyes open if you can do more than 10 seconds with your eyes closed, you're doing really well.
2: Yes, because it reminds me of this yoga pose where you kind of do this and then you lift up a leg and you put your um, you put your heel into your groin yep. and then you kind of bend over. <laughs> and, but but normally you're like looking at a point, a fixed point in front of you. But the moment you don't do that, then yeah, hey, one. You're gone. Yeah. But I,
1: but I, I, I started doing it because I um, was filmed doing hot yoga, you know, where you go into a really hot room and, I was terrible. I was, you know, falling over. The others were all sort of like statues, whereas I was sort of wobbling and then keeling over to one side. So at that point, I thought, right, I've got to improve my balance. And that's when I started looking into it, and I thought, why not do it while you're brushing your teeth? So uh, that is uh, something which has proved very popular. Quite a lot of people say, look, I started off, I could only do 10 seconds, 15 seconds. Now I can easily do two minutes. So, okay, uh, brilliant. And, and I want to be windsurfing when I'm 85. I want to be, you know. Are, are you a
2: windsurfer?
1: i am yeah when did you start windsurfing uh when i was a medical student so when i was about 18 19 yeah yes so um i was tempted by kite surfing my kids all kite surf but i think that may be a step too far well
2: i i want to try something i find because i've just i just started i tried to start this summer and i found actually my back muscles was quite challenging lifting the lifting also there was no wind which didn't help yeah but I've heard foils and things like that a bit lighter, so I, I thought that. I mean, it does look really fun.
1: Press ups, you see, that's what you need to do. That's why you need the press bicep, up, curls. You is, bicep curls. Bicep curls, get you ready for it.
2: This is the point of your book that I think is so. It, it's about getting the most out of life, and, and yes. for me, eating delicious food but eating well. The whole point of it is you're getting the most out of life. It's like sucking. It's like sucking that kind of delicious bit of the fish head. You Absolutely. want every every bit of the life you know as much as possible. absolutely
1: there's a lot of people um, talk about life expectancy and wanting to live longer but the reality is that uh, Brits live a long time we typically live to 83 or 84 but the last 20 to 25 years are normally in ill health the average person over 50 is already on multiple medications so mm-hmm. you kind of want to you know for me this is an investment in the future it's an investment yeah. in now because most of the things I write about in the book will also make you feel better, which I think is critical to actually maintaining them. You've got to feel better. Um, yes. You've got to enjoy them, and you've got to feel when you've done them either a sense of achievement or perhaps, uh, as I said, uh, a lifting in mood, whatever it might be. And then you've got to persist. And then, you know, in 20 years' time, your future self will thank your current self because you'll realise you're able to do loads of things which your contemporaries can no longer do. So, uh, and it's about starting now. I don't know, it doesn't matter what age you are, it's about starting now. Uh, It's about, you know, you just implement these things. And I genuinely, genuinely believe that that is something that can transform your life, not just now, but in the future. And it may lead to a longer life, but I'm pretty sure it'll lead to a happier one.
2: Yeah, and that's what we all, fundamentally, isn't that what we all want? I mean, I keep thinking about my granny again, who in her 80th danced to seal band until four in the morning but sadly fell over um and that's how she died so if she'd yeah. only read your book she was doing quite a lot of it right yeah. but there was a little bit more that she could and so i've got to take some questions now because so many people okay. have asked you but but very very quickly before we go into the questions this thing of fitting it all in so you're doing 28 of these things i mean i think you talked through some of it um but um i guess when you read the book it starts to become apparent doesn't it those little snacks of exercise walking between tube stops maybe um just in
1: the book i group them into um the day so basically the structure of the book is a day and so you can start with some of these things in the early morning some of the things you i want you to do for breakfast some of the things mid morning some of the things lunchtime some of the things afternoon some of the things evening so Brilliant. and they tend to be time specific because some of these things are best done uh, some of them you can meddle around depending on your, your lifestyle but most of them really take only a few moments um yeah. so uh, you could fit them into your day but uh, okay. i just think i like putting structure on these things
2: yeah okay brilliant well i think um that is fascinating now so we're going to go into an anonymous attendee um who talks about her energy slumps in the afternoon so she's postmenopausal. i get this actually quite often um in the afternoon that kind of just like oh can't keep my eyes open. Yeah. Um, One of the things
1: you can do is have a nap. It's okay. You know. Resect- yes.
2: Yes, I love napping. I yep. love taking to- a yes. That's literally my favorite thing. Power naps. 20 minutes. Power naps.
1: Exactly. Uh, and uh, that's another section I write about. Napping. Uh I spoke to an incredibly enthusiastic napper uh, from California again. And what she said is, look, depending on what you want to achieve, but probably your best bet with a nap is to aim for about 15 to 20 minutes. Um, set an alarm to wake you up because if you go into deep sleep, then that will, may rob you of, you, you'll come out of it feeling quite groggy. And yeah. you, I don't know, what's your napping routine?
2: So um, so I, I started when I was having children because it was just, I needed, I just needed to. And, um, and, and I, I tend, I, I had this weird pattern where I write a book every time I got pregnant. So I was always writing a book when I had a small child. Um, so I really needed my sleep. And it, it, it's like it's the, it's completely pivotal to how when I'm really working hard. I mean, I've just had some holidays haven't been working that hard, but when I've really got a lot on, it's the only way I can function. I suddenly get these waves of tiredness. And I used I've got quite a Protestant work ethic. So I used to feel like quite co- complex you know, feelings about napping. Is it lazy, you know, especially in our in Northern Europe, I feel like those things of laziness, am I being late? I can't go back to bed in the afternoon. That's that's not acceptable. But it is amazing how it completely refuels you. I absolutely. find it so
1: absolutely 15 to 20 minutes seems to be enough to get people going. Interestingly, there is, um, you and I are both huge fans of the Mediterranean diet, you know, in its many yeah. glories with olive oil and things like that. There's also something called the Mediterranean Life Index, uh, which incorporates napping, having a meal with your friends, socialising at the weekend, you know, two hours, you give yourself a score for all the ways in which you are Mediterranean. And they did a study, this was in BRICS, but using the Mediterranean Life Index. And those who were uh, scored highest, uh, they were the ones who had the lowest rates of heart disease, they had the highest rates of happiness, and they also had the best life expectancy. So it wasn't just the food, it was the lifestyle. And the lifestyle also embraced napping. I think B. Wilson... If you can't nap, one other tip would be to go outside okay. and go for a short, brisk walk. The light will basically wake you up. A okay, combination right. of fresh air and light is a great way of, um you know, uh, stirring your system again. Because the problem is that uh, the reason you feel tired then is because of your circadian rhythms. You have a body clock. And the things which drive sleepiness are how many hours has it been since you slept, but also which point is your body clock at. And for yeah. many people, their body clock uh, is basically telling them to have a snooze at two or three in the afternoon, so why not do it? Why not listen to that clock?
2: Yes, I think I completely, wholeheartedly agree. I think we should all give in to that. Um, uh, is CBD a good idea for endocannabinoids? Is what
1: CBD a good idea? Uh, oh right, cannabis oil. Um, not so much research being done on that. Uh, that I looked at it. Uh, I looked at it. We considered it for just one thing, but there wasn't really enough. Uh, But either you get it in such a dilute form that it kind of doesn't work, or it's certainly there is evidence in some uh, medical conditions, but it is fantastically to get this. I'm rambling, I don't honestly know. Uh, I've not found any, I don't personally take it, I've never found any incredibly compelling evidence that it's effective. Although I have met people who swear by it and who say, you know, it's brilliant for the control of pain. Uh, and things like that. So okay. uh, I think the answer is pass on that one.
2: Okay, pass. Um, we've got Carol Curran who's saying how many squats and press ups. I feel like saying that she should definitely buy the book because <laughs> you know, yeah. you, you lay it out so beautifully and you've mapped all these things so beautifully that um, but it's but I think the point is is we're not talking about spending an hour. Yeah,
1: no, we're talking about spending about a few minutes, and the idea is you build up. So you start at a low level. You may just start on your knees doing a press up. If you can't do a full proper one, doesn't matter. And you gradually work your way up to whatever level you stop at. So my current thing is I do 30 press-ups and 30 squats, and then sometimes I do a few more if I'm feeling it. But uh, the only reason I've stopped at 30 is because that would enable me to get into the Australian police. If You can do 30 press-ups in one minute. I'm told you can get So that's my, you know, a strange goal, but one that, uh, so it's, it's basically about that. And again, If you don't fancy doing them in the morning, you can do a few squats, you know, uh, when you're having a cup of tea, you put it on the kettle, you use that as a trigger to do a few squats or maybe going to the loo and you come out and you do a few press ups. Kind of depends what works for you. But uh, yeah, start slow and build up is uh, the moral on that one. I was definitely feeling
2: when I was speaking to you just just earlier that um, making tea was definitely going to be my time for standing on one leg. I feel like that's a perfect moment. Yeah. Um, t- just actually looping back onto that lifestyle thing, B. Wilson in her, one of her last books, fascinating, talks about a study they did of Japanese people who had emigrated to America and they followed two um, different sets. One that had completely adopted the Western um, habit of snacking and eating all through the day in a more solitary way. And those who regimentedly stuck with their Japanese traditions of sitting down at lunch sitting with people and taking more time to eat. And they all had much better health outcomes, the people who actually sat down and made time to eat and ate with other people. I thought that was really fascinating.
1: Absolutely. Distressingly few people actually have a kitchen table in the UK, you know, or somewhere to sit around. And I think that is bad, because I think think one, think one of the great joys of life is clearly, you know, sitting around with your friends and family and having a natter. And the other thing is when you're eating, with other people, you eat slower. And what the research shows is that when you eat slower, you eat less. Because it takes a certain amount of time for the food to get from your mouth down to uh, the small intestine where there are receptors which send signals out to your brain saying you're full. So if you eat fast, then you can eat a lot more calories before you realize you're actually full. And that's also one of the problems with ultra processed food. It's very soft generally eaten on the run so you consume huge amounts of it without even being aware of it so yeah, uh, yeah. so uh, a leisurely lunch if you can manage it is obviously kind of a good thing well i also
2: think that that's why when you cook you eat less which feel i mean people often say to me because i'm kind of naturally quite skinny anyway but um people say co- kind of quite accusatory you know ha- you mustn't eat very much but i feel like i mean i actually eat vast amount but but when the actual process of cooking kind of wets your appetite, but also um, I, I think it kind of satiates some of that emotional feeling of wanting to yeah. eat, you know, when you're feeling that emotion. But also it's that thing that when you finally sit down, you, you're slow and you eat it because you spent so time preparing it. Yeah. Um, for me, anyway. Um, someone said, does anyone find switching on Newsnight helps to fall asleep? In my case, definitely not. I just get really angry when I watch Newsnight. Because you read about these council houses that were designed with tiny kitchens and then a huge television and sitting room. So, um, yes. Uh, One,
1: One of the downsides of doing that is if you have a little snooze on the sofa while watching Newsnight, is when you go up to bed, you may find it hard to fall asleep. Because what you've learned to do is associate the sofa and Newsnight with sleep rather than bed upstairs. And it kind of reduces your sleep drive. Uh, my dad was all, uh, was always falling asleep in front of everything. So when I found myself doing the same thing, that's when I kind of realised I needed to change my lifestyle.
2: Okay, right. Well, that's a good one. That's a good one to learn. Um, so uh, Rachel's asked, this is a really interesting one, which my mother always talks about. Do you get the same effect drinking tea as for drinking water?
1: Okay. So drinking tea, a uh, big fan of, uh, whether, however, as long as you're not pouring sugar into it. Uh, some people think that, Uh, tea and coffee uh, will dehydrate you. In fact, there's no evidence for that whatsoever beyond a certain point. If you drink more than about five or six cups of tea or coffee, then it acts as a diuretic. It starts to produce a sort of net dehydration. But one of the simplest rules I came across was try to drink three large glasses of water a day, one large glass of water with every meal, because a lot of people are chronically dehydrated. Tea is not one of the just one things we have really done yet, but I would like to do it. We've done coffee and the benefits of coffee drinking. And for me, one of the surprises of coffee drinking uh, was that it's best not to consume it within an hour of waking up.
2: I found that fascinating as as someone who's married to a man who drinks a kind of coffee syrup, so strong and black um, as
1: kind of instantaneously. Yeah. Um, So the reason is that when you are when you first awake, uh, what's been happening in your body is your cortisol levels, your stress hormone levels have been rising for the last two hours It's called the car response, the cortisol arousal response. So you are already pretty aroused. You may not feel that way when you wake up, but your stress hormone levels have shot up. Your blood sugars have started to rise. And so if you pour caffeine on top of that, then it's like, you know, throwing petrol on the flame you feel more stressed, your blood sugars go up, your blood pressure goes up. What you need to do is wait for about an hour and that's when uh, the cortisol starts to drop. And so that's kind of when you hit it with caffeine. So I spoke to a sort of coffee expert and they said really try and delay it until you're having breakfast or until about an hour because they found otherwise it can have quite big effects on blood pressure and also on blood sugars. So that's the thing about caffeine. Uh, tea. Going back to that, uh, I've looked at numerous studies which show the health benefits of tea, particularly green tea, um, and that seems to be again something Japanese. Uh, there's something special in green tea. I'm not sure quite what it is. To be honest, I don't really like green tea, uh, but I drink it anyway, uh, and I've I acquired a taste for black tea, which I kind of, I sort of feel like I you know, by the time you shove lots of milk in it, you might as well be drinking warm water. So there's oh, part right. of me which is trying to That's... cultivate the flavour of the thing. Yeah.
2: Well, um, I think a great way to drink water in the evening for me is um, any herbal, like even fresh ginger sliced up in boiling water um, yeah. or lemongrass, mint, you know, any of those kind of delicious herbal things you can put in teas. Um, I always think I'm upping my liquid ratio, which is great.
1: Absolutely. Um, Lots, lots of good stuff in it. You know, we have a garden which is full of mint, which just and grows like a weed. So uh, I'm forcing everyone else to drink huge amounts of mint tea so we can decimate the, the mint crop. But uh, yeah, it's again, mint, you know, it's a plant. Uh, it could be part of your, uh, you know, five day or at least uh, your 30 different uh, species a week, which is kind of one of the other uh, things. Professor Tim Spector, who I uh, did a podcast with, that was his kind of, uh, advice was to try and aim for uh, 30 different plants across the week and that might include spices but it might include um, herbal tea as well.
2: Yes and and actually I, I'm fascinated by this uh, linked to my fascination of the biodiversity of Mexico of how you get different um, varieties into your diet and actually it's so easy so you, you talked about mint and I, and I al- always tell people to grow herbs in there in a window box inside the house or outside the house when they've got a windowsill because it's one of your things is, is getting some houseplants um, because those mingy packets of plastic wrap um, yeah. herbs, not only are they really expensive, they go off really quickly, but there's really no joy to them because t- you tend to find them festering in your in your crisper a few weeks later and throw them away, which always feels bad. So if you grow them yourself much cheaper, they're probably better for you because you pick them fresh. But I always think on a recipe, you know, a salad can have uh, bags, you know, handfuls of mint and parsley and basil, and then that's three ingredients, that's three yep. different diverse, uh, things in your diet, in just one bite of salad, so I think... It's
1: also, it's about flavour, isn't it? Yeah. And um, in many ways it acts as an alternative to piling on lots of salt, or lots of something else, that yeah. if you uh, put in some spices, some herbs, uh, you're getting the kind of antioxidant hit, and the benefits the health benefits of consuming those things, and you, you're just sort of jazzing up your, your diet a bit in different ways. So, no, I'm I'm looking forward to uh, reading your Mexican book. It's, um, you've enthused me about uh, Mexican cuisine, which uh, I have not really explored very much.
2: Oh, well, thank you, Michael. I mean, we've got two minutes left, so I'm just gonna resist, um, race through uh, too much sleep. If someone said too much sleep, I struggle to wake up. Too much up to- sleep.
1: Um, it's really only if you are uh, sleeping at the weekends, that seems to be a problem that um, a lot of people, you know, they're stressed, they're busy during the week, and then they have a lie-in. Unfortunately, the research suggests that having a lie-in can be detrimental uh, because it's um, called social jet lag. So you're experiencing, and if if you sleep in for an extra two hours, that's kind of like, you know, you've travelled to Germany or something like that, you know. There's a time difference, and your body doesn't really like it. Um, And the other problem is come Sunday evening, you've had a lie-in on Saturday morning, you've had a lie-in on Sunday morning, uh, and come Sunday evening, your sleep drive is nowhere. So you lie awake and fret before you head off for a Monday morning. So uh, unfortunately, that seems to be, if you have any issues around sleep, then having an extended lie is not a good idea. You have to be quite regimented. You have to get up at the same time every morning. And okay. uh, that so is, I so that is, I've spoken to lots of sleep experts, and that is their number one rule, if you have okay. any form of insomnia. Um,
2: so, yeah. So, so, Izzy's got to put an alarm on and have a lovely siesta in the afternoon to console herself. Yep. <laughs> um, okay. Well, I think um, we've, we've kind of got to wrap up. And Gerard says um, hints about keeping fun and enjoyment. I think you've shown masses of fun and enjoyment in it. And, and overall, just knowing that you can go out and live life and be dancing when you're 80 and, and, and just enjoying it. So, I think, um, and also these bite sized, I just love how bite sized they are. And again, your introduction of Just being kind to yourself, just slowly and steadily, just trying to build it in. Uh, it's a really helpful book which I found brilliant to read. So, thank you so much for um for letting me interview you. Um, thank you.
1: I look forward to um chatting again. Yeah, all and things I, food. I should go off and drink
2: some water, eat a bit of chocolate, and um, yeah, and read before I go to bed. Uh,
0: Michael, right. have you seen it? Michael. Thank you so much. That was brilliant and so informative and it's given us so many things to go away and try. I never knew that about coffee. I always reach for coffee first thing when I wake up. So now I know to wait, wait for an hour. Thank you both. And thank you to our audience for all of your questions. Remember that Michael and Thomasina's books, Just One Thing and Meat Free Mexican are both on sale um, from Newman Books this evening. So please do check out the information in the chat about those. Um, We have next Monday our first 5x15 of the new season with a fantastic lineup including Ed Yong, Mark O'Connell and Octavia Bright. And the following Monday on September the 18th, in the fourth event in our Six Ideas to Change the World series, we'll be hosting a special conversation with Maya Rose Craig, also known as Bird Girl, and hearing about her extraordinary story as an ornithologist and activist and her thoughts on the future of the environmental movement. Don't miss those. All the info is on 5x15's website. Thank you Both so much again. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in and good night. Good night. Bye.